From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk with Rebecca Soldit about politics and pleasure, about knowing your enemies, and about joy as an act of resistance to authoritarianism on the right and on the left. Rebecca has a new book out. It's called Orwell's Roses, and it's terrific. But first, John Nichols on Washington politics this week. That's coming up in a minute. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Now that the bipartisan infrastructure bill has passed, we anxiously await Biden's Build Back Better bill, the social programs that we call the Reconciliation Bill. It's coming up in the House. To recap what happened last weekend, the Progressive Caucus reluctantly agreed to abandon their insistence that both bills come up together and made a deal where the so-called moderates agreed to vote on the Build Back Better bill as soon as the cost estimates come in from the Congressional Budget Office. And under this deal, they would make only, quote, technical changes based on what we call the CBO scoring. But now on Tuesday afternoon, the CBO says they cannot finish their work as promised by November 15th, the date the Democrats were hoping to vote. And of course, there's a lot of anxiety in progressive circles about all the things that could go wrong. A spokesman for Bernie Sanders, Mike Casca, was quoted in the New York Times saying, it's obvious where this is headed. House moderates are going to use the CBO score no matter what it says to vote against the Build Back Better bill, close quote. And the pundit class has been insisting that the Democrats lost in Virginia and elsewhere because the party has fallen under the control of the progressives. In Tuesday's New York Times, for example, Brett Stevens wrote that the Democrats should, quote, put the social spending bill in the basement icebox and don't pass it until the Democrats have the kind of majorities that can pass it, close quote. And there are some of the so-called moderate Democrats who are saying the same thing. 
Let's start with Abigail Spanberger from Virginia. Quote, nobody elected Biden to be FDR, she said after the Republicans won Virginia. They elected him to be normal and to stop the chaos. Close quote. John Nichols, your response. Well, I guess we've reached the point where there are Democrats who refer to FDR as abnormal. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I can tell you right off the bat that that's a recipe for disaster politically, and we can discuss that more in a little bit. Nancy Pelosi, who is an actual serious politician, uh, which is kind of rare in American politics, and she moved very quickly to get the infrastructure bill into play. Now we get to where it all turns ugly. And that is that uh, this process is nowhere near finished. You have the the uncertainty in the House coming off the question of when the CBO will score this thing. Once the CBO report comes, I think there's a real danger that the moderates, at least some of these so-called moderates, they're really corporate folks, that some of them will drop off the bill, that they won't support it. Uh, That's incredibly challenging for Pelosi because she's only got, you know, a a very narrow margin, a handful of votes. She's not going to have those 13 Republicans coming over on the social spending. uh, I I don't think in in any sense. And so she's going to need all but three or four of the, of the Democrats. And that's going to require probably an additional round of negotiation, some, some real struggle there. Maybe they get there. Maybe they get there. Then they send it over to the Senate. And at that point, uh, you're going to have Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema and perhaps even some other senators say, hmm, I like your little plan here. It's, it's sweet. You know, it's adorable. But I would like to change it a little bit. And at that point, um, things all start to go to hell because uh, Manchin says, well, I don't want the family and, and medical leave in there. Cinema maybe says, well, I, I think you went a little too far on the prescription drug reform or something like that. So those things, you know, get negotiated. The senators get kind of desperate. Let's say, let's imagine that they actually get something together and they pass something in the Senate. They're going to then have to send that back over, right, either into, you know, some sort of reconciliation process between the House and Senate or back over to the House for, for reconsideration. And, uh, you know, we've spent months on this thing. And when I look at this trajectory, I see the possibility, not the certainty, I don't want to be too cynical, but the possibility that we could end up spending months more on it. And I can tell you that each month that the Democrats waste on this thing is a month that costs them politically. uh, And and I think runs the real risk of having an impact on the midterm elections that makes November 2nd, 2021 look like a, you know, kind of okay night. Well, surely those moderate Democrats know that the only hope for the party in the midterms, which are exactly one year from this week, is dramatic action that they can take to their constituents and say, look, we can govern. We're not an incompetent bunch of screw ups. Surely they know that the future of Biden, of the Democratic Party for the next decade depends on their coming together to pass some kind of Build Back Better bill. Surely. It's a nice concept, John. The problem is that, you know, as you in your introduction noted, uh, you actually have Democrats who think that, that uh, governing like FDR is abnormal and chaotic. 
Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> with all due respect, um, uh, if we were talking about the, the overall Democratic caucus or even the overall caucus of moderates within the Democratic caucus, I would say, yeah, I, yeah, surely they do know that, you know, and, and, and it's within the realm of possibility that, that you could pull something off. But because the margins in the House are so narrow, four or five votes, you know, somebody's sick, you know, whatever, you could, it could be down to a, a vote, right, or a handful yeah. of votes. Yeah. Um, it, it's a tiny number of people who have the ability, just as over in the Senate, Mansion or Cinema has the ability to stop it there. In the, in the House, you, you know, again, four or five folks, yeah. Yeah. it's not this thing. So uh, the unfortunate reality is, that you also have a bit of a philosophical division here between uh, not, this isn't the progressives, this is sort of the mainstream of the Democratic Party that understands that when Democrats are in power and they don't govern boldly, they tend to suffer severe midterm setbacks, as happened in 1994 and 2010. They understand that. But there is also a portion, they seem to be, a lot of these suburban uh, Democrats who came in in 2018 survived barely in 2020. And they basically think, no, our only purpose here is to not be Trump. Yeah. Right. And that anything else we do beyond that is problematic. And what they don't understand is that by not doing big things, by not being, you know, that, that the Democratic Party's only function is to not be Donald Trump they increase the possibility that Donald Trump will return politically. Yeah. They actually make it make his route easier by failing to do big things. Well, maybe we should say a word for Biden's bipartisan infrastructure bill. It's actually pretty darn good. The largest public works bill since Ike created the interstate highway system in the 50s. It's something Trump talked about every year, but never did anything about. It's going to do a lot of great things for pretty much everybody in America. Yeah, it's pretty darn good. You know, I think it's a very Minnesota sort of uh, <laughs> reference to it. You know, I mean, it's it's not, not overly enthusiastic, but, you know, it's not bad. And um, look, the reality is that the infrastructure bill was so good, you got 13 Republicans to vote for it. And they didn't vote for it because they're honorable players. They voted for it because, you know, they come from places where they want to build things, you know, and they're, they're like a lot of them from New York, actually. In fact, it's like the New York component of this thing is quite significant. Uh, yeah. Without the New York Republicans, it would have been much harder to pass. And and so what's in it? It's roads, bridges, curb cuts, you know, all the railroad, standard. A lot of railroad. Yeah, a lot, lot of railroad. A lot of Joe Biden railroad. Um, <laughs> a decent amount of mass transit. Uh, and, you know, and, and so and and. Infrastructure is equity. This is an interesting thing. Infrastructure is about fairness. If you have a, a good distribution of that infrastructure money, not merely to roads and bridges, but also to advanced transit, to railroads and things like that, you can actually help a lot of people. And you can help a lot of people who are in circumstances where getting to a job, getting you know to school and things like that become much easier. So a lot of good stuff in here. And also... It isn't just uh, the classic physical infrastructure. There really is a lot of money for broadband and for, you know, the build out of, of uh, a modern infrastructure, if you will, that isn't just roads and bridges. So, yeah, it's a it's a pretty innovative bill. It's got a lot of money in it. I can tell you in talking to local elected officials around the country, they're salivating. You know, they, they can't wait to get this and that it will have an impact. And in fact, you know, ultimately, 
it will have a good impact as regards, uh, you know, we talk about the political components of this. The problem is they've delayed so long now, you know, on both the physical and social uh, components of this, which should have been passed back in July. The whole thing should have been done. Maybe they take a couple of weeks to negotiate and then they do it. Now they're getting toward the end of the year. Uh, a lot of these infrastructure projects are going to take time. More than a year to get off the ground. Yes. And so the, this is where it gets to be a big deal because yeah. uh, folks who say, oh, we passed the infrastructure bill. That will be enough in 2022. Everybody will say, oh, there's a bridge going up, you know, a couple miles from here. I'm going to vote Democratic. Uh, no, that isn't going to happen. Yeah. Uh, first off, the Republicans will claim credit for the bridges. And, but secondly, that's why the, the social welfare, the, the human infrastructure thing becomes so important. Because if indeed a year from now, people, older folks are saying, wow, I'm getting, I'm getting hearing aids, you know, paid for by the government, or people are taking family and medical leave, or people are, you know, getting, you know, funded to take care of their kids, or people are, or education funding is really starting to flow in a lot of ways. That's something people are much more likely to feel. Yeah. Um, and so uh, that's why the notion that you could stop here on the infrastructure bill, which is very good and it's got a lot of good stuff, from a political standpoint, it's not sufficient. Well, the Republicans seem to be a little nervous about the passage of the infrastructure bill. A lot of the top Republicans went last weekend to Las Vegas for one of my favorite political events of the year, the Republican Jewish Coalition's annual meeting in Las Vegas. But you've stopped attending. <laughs> it is notable that while, of course, they, they focused on, you know, crowing over their victory in Virginia— very few of them were willing to say that Donald Trump was the right presidential candidate for them in 2024. Even Ted Cruz declined to say whether Trump would be their best candidate in 2024. Now, that's, of course, because he thinks he'd be the best candidate. But I wonder if there isn't some truth to the idea that if Trump were to run again, he would lose again after all, in 2020, he lost by 7 million votes. That's a lot. Do you think Ted Cruz could be right about what he seems to be hinting at here? John, you're never going to get me to say Ted Cruz is right uh, <laughs> about anything. But, but Ted Cruz's you know, self-service points us toward a right answer. Uh, Ted Cruz desperately wants to run for president again. Um, he was even saying at this conference that... Uh, that this, the runner-up in past elections is often the nominee the next time. Right? <laughs> going back and saying, well, I was a runner-up in 16. It's a pretty convoluted way to get to it. But, but with that understood, absolutely, there's no question, Donald Trump is perhaps the worst possible nominee for the Republican Party. It's why, why Democrats are at once horrified and enthusiastic about his potential candidacy, uh, because Donald Trump can get the base vote, and he can get a lot of votes. He got you know 70 million the last time around. But the idea that he can take it to that next level, right? That that he can he can actually win it, that becomes much more complicated. And it will become more complicated, John, as America becomes more diverse, younger, all these other issues. So Republicans, I think a lot of savvy Republicans would love to have an alternative candidate. And there's no doubt that uh, Brett Stevens, who you're so enamored of, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, he and other people, they're actually like starting to 
tout the idea of this Glenn Yonkin. <laughs> I don't know. He looking kind of presidential to us, <laughs> you know, but but I don't know that Stevens, but uh, the New York Times editorial page has, has already entertained that notion because it's sort of like suburban dad, which, you know, it was a really good construct when you think about it. They took a Carlisle Group CEO and put a sweater vest on him. And they were able to That's all it takes. Him. I guess so. You know, and suburban dad with a Nixon Southern strategy kind of thing. You know, it's a it's, it's a construct that I, I think Republicans get very excited about. But here's the trouble. Donald Trump is, in fact, a lousy candidate. But his base voters, who are now the base voters of the Republican Party, they're very enthusiastic. They show up in big numbers. These are people who still believe he's president or believe he won the last election. You aren't going to be able to convince them that he's not the best candidate in 2024. They're going to turn out in primaries, in caucuses, if he's running, they're going to make him the nominee of the party. That's bottom line. Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee if he wants the gig. And I happen to think he wants the gig. And so we end up in this situation where whatever Republican strategists may tell you is best for the party or that they, you know, the logical move, that's not what's going to happen there. That's what makes the 2022 midterm elections such a big deal. Because if Republicans have a wave election, if they win big, in 2022, and they take state houses across the country with sending in a whole bunch of new Trump aligned, Trump, you know, associated Republicans. And also they take the House and Senate. You're going to end up in a situation potentially uh, in 2024 where we see a repeat. Trump gets beat, but then claims he the election was stolen from. Him. And, and I think we really would get to the point where there are state legislatures around the country you know, naming slates of electors, Congress potentially in early 2025, having a much more chaotic sort of January 6th on steroids situation. Uh, not maybe the violence, but the, the voting to overturn. I think there's, there's huge bad stuff ahead. And how do we circle that back into what we've been discussing today? It's very simple. You know, in the 1930s, Roosevelt faced, you know, some real threats and some real dangers if if he didn't win and if the Democrats didn't maintain control, there were American first or Republicans out there who were pretty scary. And um, Roosevelt concluded, the Democrats around him concluded, the way to win is to do great big things, to do a new deal. Uh, that remains a very good lesson. And so we get back to the situation now where uh, what Democrats do in the next few weeks matters a great deal. And it becomes very, very essential that they pass a robust social spending bill and get it moving quickly so that in 2022, people are enthusiastic to come vote and that, that they feel that voting uh, for the party that gave them these things may get them more good things. That's, that's how politics works. And I know that we have to constantly explain that to the Democrats, but um, it's something they should be thinking about now. Even Abigail Spanberger. John Nichols on Dark Days Ahead and How We Can Avoid Them. John, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much, John. It was great to be with you. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Now it's time to talk about politics and pleasure, about joy as an act of resistance to fascism. For that, we turn to Rebecca Solnit. She's written more than 20 books, including Recollections of My Non-Existence. We talked about it here. She's probably best known as the author of Men Explain Things to Me. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian. She's also written for The New Yorker, The LRB, Harper's, and The Nation. She writes about feminism, climate change, activism, and hope. And now she's got a new book out. It's called Orwell's Roses. It's terrific. We reached her today at home in San Francisco. Hi, Rebecca. Hello, John. Well, in high school, I learned that George Orwell warned against the dangers of totalitarianism in the novels Animal Farm in 1984. And then later, lots of us discovered Homage to Catalonia, his thrilling memoir about fighting fascism in the Spanish Civil War and then fighting Stalinism as a leftist. But your new book about him begins, in the spring of 1936, a writer planted roses. You went to England more than 70 years later to see if you could find any trace of those rose bushes. Please explain why you wanted to do that. I actually was looking for fruit trees. My dear friend, the filmmaker Sam Green, thought he might do something about trees. Maybe we might do something together. He was very interested in trees planted by distinguished people. And I mentioned that Orwell had planted fruit trees, which I knew from his wonderful essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray, and where he talks about how the planting of a tree, particularly a long-lived hardwood tree, will probably outlive anything else you do, good or evil, and talks about planting apples and other fruit trees and roses and going back 10 years later after he no longer lived there and seeing them all flourishing and reflecting on that. So I actually went to where he had planted those things, thinking I was on an errand for my friend, The lovely people who lived there invited me in, delivered the bad news that the fruit trees had been cut down in the 90s to expand the garden shed. And then after I'd hung out a while, because they were very hospitable, they said, oh, but you know, his roses are still growing. Would you like to see them? And Mm -hmm. oh my God, would I? And I realized, so I'd known the essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray for probably 35 years at that point. I read it in my very early 20s but never thought hard enough about what does it mean that our great prophet of totalitarianism, our great anti-fascist, you know, this man who devoted himself so brilliantly to fighting authoritarianism, but also corruption and lies on the left and propaganda, 
that he also had planted roses. And it felt like there was some wonderful set of questions about pleasure and joy and beauty and the natural world as they relate to a committed life, one particular committed life. But for any of us who are trying to live one or well kind of flushed out of the undergrowth, some really interesting things to think about. And so I was off and running. Well, I think about roses, or I thought about roses, as a consumer product, something we're supposed to give to our Valentine on Valentine's Day, sold in every supermarket every day of the year, a dozen roses for $12. I thought of them as part of traditional femininity, pink and pretty and delicate and domestic, But then you mentioned in this book that you found wild roses growing high in the Himalayas at 12,000 feet when you went hiking there. You were part of a team delivering basic health care. That was one of my all-time favorite pieces of yours. And here you call the roses of Dolpo heroic and supremely tough. That made me think about roses in a different way. Yeah, roses grow in a whole lot of places on most of the continents, They are very tough plants. And so in Dolpo, which is the Tibetan plateau on the Nepal side of the border, where I went on a couple of medical missions in 2015 and 17, you would get up really high, well above 10,000 feet, some of the highest communities in the world, very stark, overgrazed, et cetera. And the last green thing you would see were these huge rose bushes, the size of a you know, a Volkswagen perhaps, or <laughs> or thereabouts often. And I was there in the fall, so there were no flowers there, but they were covered in beautiful crimson rose hips. And they were sort of so cheerful and alive and so tough to be growing where nothing else could grow. They were just remarkable. I've seen roses in the subarctic growing wild. I've seen them going wild in the California uh, countryside and mountains and the English countryside. And they are really tough plants. And part of why there's this huge, horrific rose industry, a kind of rose factory business or rose macchiadoras outside Bogota in Colombia is because roses are tough, durable flowers. You can cut them and pack them outside Bogota, rush them to a 747. And because I visited one of those rose plantation come factories, I know that a 747 can carry 1.6 million roses. They land in Miami, the refrigerated flowers are rushed into refrigerated trucks and driven to all your Trader Joe's and florists and supermarkets, et cetera. And they're just It's so alienated. I know uh, sweatshop labor producing industrialized flowers carried on 747s. When you give your love a rose, you, you want it to be about love and gardens and all these things we want to associate with roses. And so going to Columbia to look at them as part of this process of thinking about Orwell and roses was also a way of asking a really big question. What do we do? about things that might be aesthetically pleasurable and ethically hideous. And what were Orwell's aesthetics and how did they relate to his ethics? And essentially in his case, they were very often the same thing. And so, you know, this book literally took me many, many places 
um, including Columbia, back to or back to Orwell's Garden, you know, into the histories of Stalinism and ag- agronomy and fa- uh, Soviet famines, the origin of the phrase "bread and roses," and the Spanish Civil War, and so much more. We have many things to talk about. You say that when Orwell planted those roses in 1936, it was you call it a bet on the future. I guess that's a bet that fascism would be defeated, that he'd be around afterwards to smell the roses. But for you, this bet on the future meant meant more than that. Standard image most of us have of Orwell is as this terribly austere, grim, pessimistic guy. 1984 is seen as a very gloomy, pessimistic, doomy book, a book of defeat. And... Um, You know, Orwell kept planting gardens, and to plant something is itself a profound gesture of hope. You assume that there is some kind of future. You know, if you plant, you know, annuals, you're just thinking in the spring that maybe there's going to be a fall and you're going to live to see it. But if you plant (laughs) fruit trees, rose bushes, these kind of long-lived things, you're really betting on some deeper time. And what's striking is not only did he plant this first ambitious garden of his in 1936 when he began leading the life he wanted in the country about to get married trying to make his living from writing but so barely doing it he really needed all the vegetables and potatoes and eggs from his chickens who were laying up to 100 eggs a week which he was also selling to supplement his literary income milk from his goats etc but then 10 years later when he's actually pretty financially successful thanks to the success of Animal Farm. How does he begin writing 1984? He fulfills his longtime dream of moving to an island in the Hebrides, the Isle of Jura, uh, to an old farmhouse and starts a much more ambitious garden come farm, which will ultimately have 16 acres under cultivation for hay plus gardens plus geese plus a couple of cows, I believe a horse, a tractor. So he's really into this stuff. And he's actually dying of tuberculosis pretty significantly by the time he's starting this garden in Jura. And the hopefulness of it that he's really investing in the future and, you know, moving there because it's a good place to raise his little boy. And then ultimately he's going to die at the beginning of 1950, but die with a fishing rod in his room because he was hoping not to die of that fatal hemorrhage of the lungs from tuberculosis. He was hoping to go recuperate in a sanatorium in Switzerland and maybe get some fishing in. So he's actually fairly hopeful. And the epigraph for this book is from LA's own wonderful Octavia Butler, or should I say Pasadena's, the very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities and offer warnings is in itself an act of hope. We've been talking about the roses of the future, but we have friends who say it's wrong for privileged people like us to enjoy the roses of the present when other people can't, while other people suffer and are denied the basics of a human existence. I know you don't agree with that argument, and Orwell didn't either. Yeah, there's the left is so full of puritanical austerities and Orwell rejected them to enjoy himself, usually in very modest ways. And he wrote a number of wonderful essays in praise 
of pleasures. He wrote an argument when people said books were luxuries that the working class couldn't afford, comparing the cost of tobacco for a heavy smoker like himself with the cost of books and coming down that, yeah, you could actually have books. Everyone, everyone who could afford cigarettes could afford books. He wrote about the, you know, the pleasures of English food, of flowers, of gardens, of beer, of a good cup of tea, of nursery rhymes, of good, bad books, um, domesticity and things like that. There's a deep sense on the part of the left that somehow, first of all, nobody should have heard anything nice until after the revolution. And I'm old enough to remember when people actually thought there would be an after the revolution. We now know there will be no such thing. And so if you have to wait till after the revolution, it's just permanently, you know, put off, but also people who are in concentration camps, refugee camps, people who are facing genocide and torture and starvation are not sitting around thinking, I hope some middle-class people in America are being very grim and grumpy on their sofas. <laughs> you know, what they're hoping is that we actually do something for them. They want solidarity. They want attention to their causes. They want defense of their rights. They want they want to live. And then ultimately, they probably want joy and pleasure and beauty in their lives, too. And you do other things with roses in this book, and not just with roses. You write about a 106-acre forest in Utah of quaking aspen trees, which you say share a common root system and makes this a single organism larger than any other on Earth and about 80,000 years old. This is just astounding and, and wonderful, and it does suggest something about survival of the fittest and that evolution is not just a competition among individuals for domination and supremacy. There's also cooperation and mutuality and, and sharing a common root system. One of the really exciting things happening in our time is that all the capitalist frameworks for understanding human evolution, society, economic success, but also the natural world are crumbling because they were never very accurate or true. And we're finding as we look harder at what makes societies and economies work, at human nature itself, um, from everything from neurobiology to studying uh, you know, toddlers' responses uh, to, you know, all this other stuff is that essentially it's all mutual aid, cooperation, interdependence, um, that we survive by our connections to each other, not our competitions with each other. You can see it in a lot of subtle ways in how people are rethinking our social systems and et cetera, all the wonderful ways young people are just not so thrilled with capitalism as some of us older people haven't been, et cetera. I'd also like to ask you about 1984, which I wrote a paper about my senior year of high school, you know, Big Brother and the Thought Police and the Ministry of Truth and Newspeak. You recently reread the book. What did you find in it now? I was fascinated to find a book that felt so different than what I remembered. First of all, Winston is a rebel against Big Brother and the totalitarian regime he finds himself under, but he doesn't successfully topple the regime. He only briefly tries to join an insurrection that turns out to be a trap. So he doesn't do anything really practical. What he does 
is he becomes the person that the party doesn't want you to be. He attempts to preserve memory to determine what really happened in history. He seeks out sensual pleasure from a love affair to just the everyday pleasure of writing your thoughts with an ink pen on a beautiful uh, on beautiful paper in an old book he's bought in an antique store in a district he shouldn't have been in in the first place, a proletarian district. He doesn't think the thoughts he's supposed to think. In a way, 1984 isn't about what is totalitarianism. It's about what is totalitarianism trying to destroy. And in a sense, how do we resist it? We resist it, Orwell and Winston Smith seem to say, by being the people totalitarianism doesn't want us to be. Orwell says in that book, the final order of the party was to not believe the evidence of your eyes and ears or to ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears. Therefore, firsthand empirical experience in the life of your of the senses helps build the independent, grounded person who can think, think and judge for themselves. That's not who they want you to be. And you could apply this to Trumpism because the Trump people have turned out to be 40 million people who believe whatever you want them to believe about abortion, pandemics, climate, elections, you name it. And um, Hannah Arendt says something very similar, that the ideal subject of totalitarianism is he for whom the difference between truth and falsity no longer matters. So making that difference really matter, um, you know, paying attention to that difference being careful with those things, as Timothy Snyder in the present would remind us, is a really important act in our time where we face similar things. And so you can see Winston Smith engaging in these acts of trying to form a self, and ultimately he's defeated. Big Brother bursts in, the thought police burst into the room in which he's having his love affair with Julia and carry him away and torture him and brainwash him and turn him into a broken husk of a human being. But what was also striking on this last reading was that Winston regularly says, if there's hope, it lies in the proles. I think a lot of people misread the book by saying, well, Winston is defeated, therefore there's no hope. But Winston himself three times sees this stout middle-aged woman singing in a beautiful voice, a sentimental song while hanging out diapers. I think that she's the proles where hope lies. And there's two things that are truly striking about her. First is that Orwell, who's not always been that good with women, although there's a lot of strong women in his books, sees her, describes her almost as a goddess. She might have been hanging out those diapers for a thousand years. She seems to be inexhaustibly powerful with the song. She's thinking about love and the past you know, having these emotions and thoughts you're not supposed to have with the diaper she's committing to the future, like planting a tree. So she seems like this great beacon of hope. And then just before the thought police break in, this thing that was absolutely stunning for me reading this book one more time happens. He looks at her, sees that she, this stout, coarsened, reddened, middle-aged woman is beautiful. And he thinks to himself, why should the rose hip be less beautiful than the rose. And so this is a rose metaphor at the very heart of 1984. Winston somehow has flowers in his head on more than that Orwell does. And it reminds me of one of my dearly hold, held tenets that we need the natural, not only for physical survival, not only for the spiritual 
sustenance, but it furnishes our imaginations. We think in metaphors. Most of our metaphors are drawn from the embodied spatial natural world of plants and animals and plowing and reaping and all those things. And so somehow in knowing roses, Winston, but really Orwell has found a way to understand beauty and the power of this woman. And that's the very centermost essence at the heart of 1984. And it was a shock to find, a wonderful shock, a kind of buried treasure in the book that I could read a different way because I had found a different Orwell and recognized he wasn't this grim, austere, pessimistic person at all. We have to talk about homage to Catalonia. Reading it for the first time in my 20s was a, a huge thing. And now I know from your book that it was for you too. What was it about homage to Catalonia that made it so important? For me, it was a really vivid firsthand description of being in moments when history was being made, what it looks like from the bottom up, from the trenches. What it meant for me when I was young, and it greatly influenced my second book, Savage Dreams, was you could be passionately committed to a cause while seeing it so close up, you saw its flaws and imperfections and ridiculousnesses, and that didn't deter you. Orwell saw how poorly trained most of the Spanish he was fighting with were, what a lost cause it was. And then in a much more serious way, he came to understand he wasn't fighted, fighting in a two-sided war, fascism versus anti-fascism. He was in a three-sided war. There were the fascists, the um, party of General Franco backed by Mussolini and Hitler. But the so-called loyalists were really two factions at war with each other. One of them was all these non-aligned leftists that Orwell was with, Trotskyists and general purpose socialists and trade unionists and anarchists and et cetera. And then there were the Soviet aligned communists. Stalin didn't want a revolution in Spain. He wanted to repress it and he wanted to control what was happening. And so ultimately the party Orwell was with was hunted and demonized the party line of good communists writing in the communist worker newspaper in England, as well as some of the Spanish newspapers, with that they were secretly traitors in league with the fascists, etc. Orwell had to escape Spain, you know, under fear of death because of who he'd been fighting with. As an anti-fascist, the leader of his group, the POUM, was captured, tortured, and assassinated. And so, yeah, so the Spanish Civil War. I think is about valor, about what it means to live in revolution, about disillusionment, about good reporting, about trying to understand the big picture while also being deeply grounded in firsthand experience. And it's such a powerful book, which got very little traction in its own time. It sold very few copies. It pissed a lot of people off because most people who are supposed to be the left were loyal to the Soviet Union, um, some of them because they didn't know what the Soviet Union and Stalin were doing. Some of them, to my shock in some ways, when I came much closer and deeper into it, writing this book, perfectly okay with Stalin sending hundreds of thousands of people to gulags, torturing, terrorizing, repressing the truth, betraying the revolution by becoming an absolute dictator in a reign of terror. and. Uh, 
that was so much part of the book was looking at that and looking at how the left in Orwell's time was so often just fine with human rights uh, with human rights violations and the ultimate hierarchy that is authoritarianism. There are echoes of it in our time with the creepy people who support, um, you know, Vladimir Putin, Assad in Syria, and who have supported a number of other dictators because they're anti-American or officially socialist. But I digress. <laughs> Orwellian is a very familiar term of, of political description. What, what exactly does it mean today? I think when people say it, they mean something that's sinister, creepy, and also hypocritical, deceptive, manipulative, etc. And to say, for a powerful person to say one thing when they know the truth is another is often called Orwellian. Surveillance systems from Google to the Chinese government are Orwellian. To me, the most Orwellian thing going right now is Donald Trump, who's been arguing ever since Election Day that Joe Biden did not win the 2020 election. And virtually every Republican officeholder and millions of Republican voters are saying the same thing. And there's one more thing that makes Orwell important, you've argued. One of the things Orwell teaches us is you need to know what you're against. And, you know, if you're going to be an activist, a political writer, an organizer, an anti-fascist, you need to know your enemy. But you need to know what you're for. And he was not only trying to fight for a world in which everybody would have bread and roses, but to enjoy him himself in the present, which I think partly was pacing himself, taking care of himself so he could be the great anti-fascist, the great political thinker he was. But also it was a spur to the imagination. It was a grounding in the tangible empirical world so you wouldn't get lost in the swirls of information and disinformation. But it was also always staying in touch of, with what he was for, what he wanted for everyone, and in various mostly modest ways secured for himself and just the pleasures of everyday life and the natural world in the garden. Rebecca Solnit's wonderful new book is Orwell's Roses. Rebecca, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. What a pleasure, John. Thank you so much. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Thank you.